Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you all to a very special seminar. Unlike our usual Friday seminars in which we've been talking about the issues of the day, usually driven by catastrophic politics, sources of deep depression, tonight we're actually taking the opportunity both to inform ourselves about the desperate challenges facing Gaza in the domain of healthcare, but perhaps even more importantly, to take an opportunity to salute colleagues from Oxford whose work doesn't make the headlines, it certainly doesn't get them pay raises or bring them plaudits from people in power, but who in their way, and over many years now, have been doing more of good for Palestine than anybody I can think of in the Western world, uh, academics in particular. So I am humbled by the Oxford medics who have been volunteering to work in Gaza in the way in which they have taken their knowledge and their privileged position to be working in one of the finest medical faculties in the world, and sharing that to help enable people in Gaza whose need could not be greater to become such, well, as you'll hear in the course of the presentations, remarkable doctors. It's our chance to say to you, we take our hats off. We think that, we think that you do this university proud, you do this country proud, and you do a great service to Palestine, for which I'm sure their gratitude is probably your greatest compensation. So we have three doctors from this university who will be speaking in tonight's panel. Richard Guy, MD, fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, is a consultant, colorectal and general surgeon at the Oxford University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. After entering Birmingham University Medical School in 1982, and inspired by the surgeons in the Falklands War, Richard joined the Royal Navy in 1984. Following MBCHB graduation in 1987, he became a commando doctor with the Royal Marines, returning to basic surgical training in 1991 in the naval hospitals with brief interludes in Belize and Gibraltar. He undertook a period of research at the Ministry of Defense Research Establishment at Portendown, culminating in the award of MD for an experimental study of blast injury in the rat followed by a year's appointment as surgeon in HMS Illustrious in 1994-95, seeing active service in the Adriatic. Specialist colorectal training was undertaken in Plymouth, Basingstoke, Oxford, St. Mark's, and Singapore, before appointment in 2001 as consultant surgeon in Peterborough. Followed deployments to Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq on active service, before retirement from the Navy in 2004, and appointment as consultant colorectal surgeon in Oxford, from 2009. Richard's also a lecturer in medicine at Worcester College. Clinical and research interests include advanced and recurrent colorectal cancer, screening colonoscopy, inflammatory bowel disease, emergency abdominal surgery, the abdominal catastro uh, catastrophe, and intestinal failure. Global and disaster relief surgery and teaching are of great interest, and recent trips to Palestine, particularly Gaza, have been inspiring and humbling stimulating an enthusiasm to do more for the less fortunate in such war-torn regions. And Richard will begin the panel by talking us through the work of the Oxford surgeons in Gaza. But I'm going to take this moment to introduce our other two speakers, and then I'll just call you to the podium when it's your turns. Following Richard Guy, we will hear from Dr. Omar Abdelmanan, who is a pediatrician currently training in North London, having read medicine at St. John's College here in Oxford between 2005 and 2011. He's subspecializing in pediatric neurology at Great Ormond Street Hospital and was recently an NIHR-funded academic clinical fellow at the UCL Institute of Child Health from 2014 to 2017. His main research interests revolved around epilepsy epi epidemiology and mortality in childhood, and he's currently completing a part-time MSc in public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. After seeing the devastating effect of the Israeli blockade and bombardment on Gaza in 2009, Dr. Abdel became involved in building the foundations for an educational link between medical students and doctors at Oxford University and Palestinian medical schools. This has since developed by his successors into Oxpal MedLink, a collaborative partnership between students and doctors working at Oxford University and affiliated hospitals, and medical students at El Quds Medical School, the Islamic University of Gaza, and Al-Azhar University, Gaza. Dr. Abdelmanan first visited Jerusalem and the West Bank in 2011 and 2012 with the Oxford Teaching Initiative led by the late Nick Dudley, 
to promote these educational links and has since traveled to Gaza in 2013 and 2017, teaching Palestinian medical students at the bedside alongside a team of senior physicians and surgeons. Forward to welcoming Omar, who will be then followed by Dr. Deborah Harrington, a new member of the Oxford Teaching Initiative, and first visited Gaza in 2017. The opportunity to see at first hand the challenges to delivering high quality health care for women and working with some of the amazing people who are meeting these challenges, she claims was inspiring. She's a consultant obstetrician and subspecialist in maternal and fetal medicine at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and has been clinical lead for the maternal medicine unit looking after women with complex medical conditions in pregnancy for the last 10 years. John Radcliffe is one of the busiest obstetrics and gynecology units in the UK, delivering around 8,500 babies per year. Although on a Gazan scale, this is quiet, 8,500 kids. She has a particular interest in education. She's a college tutor and has recently taken over as head of school for obstetrics and gynecology in the Oxford Deanery. She also serves on the RCOG Council and RCOG Clinical Quality Board. The RCOG has a wide global interest in women's health. So those are the formal, proper introductions. When I ask you to welcome our speakers, I'd like you to do so with particular warmth, for we not only welcome you, we honor you. Okay, Eugene, thanks very much indeed for uh, such a warm welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an absolute delight to be here and a privilege and it's been quite a Gazan day, really, uh, hasn't it? And thoroughly enjoyed hearing Norman Finkelstein at lunchtime. A very controversial topic. I'll try not to be too controversial. Of course, we're supposed to be very impartial, aren't we, as uh, medics? And I think I probably have the easier of the three tasks in, in being slightly less controversial, maybe. Sorry about the photograph. It wasn't supplied by me. It looks like I'm about to strangle one of the naughty students, but uh, that is not actually the case. I'm rather put off by the dental chair in the corner there, by the way, so if anyone's naughty, then... Uh, I hope that I can demonstrate Oxford companionship on a number of levels as I go through in the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. This meeting all came about by fairly circuitous route, really. We went to Gaza uh, on our last visit in October, and October 2017, or thereabouts, marked the centenary of the, uh, the battles for Gaza and the third battle for Gaza in November 1917. And this um, captivated me, really, and I took a, a great interest in, in the whole region and uh, read this book, and anyone who hasn't read it, you need to know, we need to know why not, and I completely endorse the Sunday Telegraph's uh, review there. But uh, nevertheless, I, I came back to the UK, and I was fortunate enough to uh, make contact with Eugene, and we had a chat, and we had a chat about the Middle East, we had a chat about the Gazan War Cemeteries, there are two, and they're fantastically preserved, they're beautiful, as you might expect Commonwealth War Graves cemeteries to be. And uh, the gravestones tell a story, don't they? The Imperial Camel Corps, which was disbanded in 1919, and the, the Australian Light Horse, and their importance in, in defeating the Ottomans in the, uh, in, in the Gazan uh, Wars was, is all in, uh, in Eugene's book. And so we talked a little bit about this, but we talked more about what we do, and uh, I was very humbled to, uh, to be invited to put this uh, little group together to try and tell you what we do. So that's how it all started. We laid a wreath, by the way, so the British Legion sent us a wreath and we laid it uh, in memory of the fallen from those walls. There are a few people in the audience who are far better disposed than me to uh, talk about Gaza and its troubles, and Surian Chalmers is here and Lady Chalmers here this evening. One slide, of course, doesn't do him justice or indeed some other people, but... Uh, Suffice to say that uh, Sir Ian's involvement in Gaza goes way back to the 60s when he spent a couple of years there and is on record as saying that everything that he's done since uh, is related to that period of time. You can read it for yourself. On the far side there, most renowned, of course, for the founding of the Cochrane Collaboration and evidence-based medicine, systematic reviews in order to inform our practice. And also the editor of the this online service, the James Lind Library, which is well worth looking up. And to extend the naval, of course, James Lind, one of the first doctors to carry out a randomised controlled trial of citrus fruit in, in scurvy, of course. But just to extend the Royal Navy link a little bit further, Professor Colin Green, whom some of you may know, has many, many hats, of course, one of which was a naval hat 
veterinary surgeon, eminent scientist, perhaps most notably in transplantation, organ transplantation, immunology. And from our point of view, the Gaza link, the Palestine link through Al-Quds University and the foundation of a medical school there, and FQMS, which has supported, along with IMET 2000, supported our endeavours in Gaza and, as you can see, deserved of a medal award in 2004. So it's rather humbling to be in the presence of some of these people. Sir Terence English couldn't be here uh, today, but he, there he is flying the Medical Aid for Palestinians flag in around uh, 2012 or so. He was the leader of the team that uh, carried out the first heart transplant in the UK, ex-president of the Royal College of Surgeons and an honorary patron of uh, MAP. So these people, if you like, uh, laid some of the foundations uh, for our visit. And this was complemented by Mr Nick Dudley, who died in 2016 and really set up the teaching programme. He first visited Palestine in around 2003 and in subsequent years there was a, a fairly eclectic mix of people who would go out with Nick initially doing some anatomy teaching and then teaching medical students on various clinical matters. And so it grew, and uh, you can see on the far side here, Bruce George, uh, my surgical colleague, is in the audience, uh, was one of the originals, as we might say, Professor John Kenwright, and there's Nick in the middle, and Nick Maynard in around 2007, I think that photograph was taken, in Bethlehem. So from there, things grew, but it was all really centred around the West Bank at that time, and uh, going to the various occupied areas, uh, Bethlehem, Ramallah, Nablus, uh, and so on, and Hebron, of course, we've, we've heard about. Just indulge me while I just talk a little bit about the West Bank and so on. The, the base, Jerusalem, is the Mount of Olives here, and when, we, when I first went in 2015, wasn't really expecting snow of course but this was the this was the base and from this base we went out to the various areas the teaching was fairly full-on it was mainly clinical and you can see lots of bedside teaching lots of enthusiastic doctors and students but there were a few things that came out of this and these are certainly applicable to to Gaza as well these are very 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 bright individuals and, as you can see, the top 5% of uh, school leavers. The problem, in some respects, is that they were taught in a very didactic way, very spoon-fed, very book-led teaching, and very little in the way of bedside and clinical teaching. And it was felt that this hole could be filled by the, the Oxford input, if you like. This is where it's grown from, and we've capitalised on that to some extent. There are, of course, barriers to learning, barriers to clinical education in that environment, and the restrictive travel, the need for permits and so on to get around, coupled with this lack of dedicated facilities, the lack of senior supervision perhaps, there being very little incentive for some of the surgeons and clinicians there to provide teaching, and this textbook knowledge rather than the applied knowledge, and this volatile context in which one's trying to learn. We all know about this, we know the difficulties of getting around this area, and that's of course applicable to the medical students themselves. And Oxpal, we've heard about. I think Omar may well mention this further. But a few years ago, a very simple study of Oxpal looking at 50 students, just showing really that their travel to their hospital environment or their teaching environment was very disrupted and very difficult for them to learn. And so attention turned to, to Gaza at this point in around 2012. Just It was the elephant in the room, really. How could there be some contact made with Gaza? And through the people I've already mentioned, through Nick Dudley, Colin Green, and Sir Ian, and so on, the Gaza link grew. You'll hear a little bit more about these sorts of figures. I'm sure they're very well known to you, but the population is growing. It is around 2 million, and half of the population is young. It is a problem. The doctors are not being employed, and so on. And here was uh, my first trip in 2015. So this followed on soon after the trouble from 2014. Here is Shamek, who's in the audience, pointing wistfully at the sign through the Eros crossing. He was refused permission, unfortunately, that year. This is uh, on the Israeli side. It shows a picture on one of the barriers of the Twin Towers. I'm not quite sure who's painted it, but one wonders if uh, there's some tarring with the same brush. There's a bullet there somewhere, a bullet hole, and this is the Eros crossing. Uh, with shattered glass 
And you get the idea, basically. It's difficult to get across the area's crossing. There's the sort of mile-long walk of shame as you move across to the Gazan side. It's difficult. It's even more difficult getting back into the Israeli side, but uh, I won't dwell on that for now. Lots of politics. Won't be going into this, but, of course, as you go around Gaza, these sorts of murals are, are, are all over the place and and I know you can name all of those people very readily. So 2014, this is what happened. We talked at lunchtime about indiscriminate bombing, collateral damage. There is serious collateral damage here. It's very difficult for one to say that there's been some targeted bombing here, uh, looking for Hamas individuals and so on. This is indiscriminate damage. So when we went in in 2015, it was all still very evident. It was very raw. The people were picking themselves up, but there was a fairly flattened city and people trying and struggling and so on in what is a beautiful environment, a beautiful coastline, now, of course, fairly contaminated through sewage and and such like. The bombing was indiscriminate, and this is a picture before I went to Gaza. It's provided by Bruce George, uh, my colleague here, of El Wafa Rehabilitation Hospital, a thriving hospital and, of course, targeted. And here is the director of the hospital, Hamis, who is a great friend of ours now, standing where his office used to be. And uh, tragic, absolutely tragic. There was a warning given. I think it was about 15 minutes. Amazingly, they were able to take their patients out, get them out, and nobody died as a result. But the hospital no longer exists. They've now relocated and are, again, doing amazing work for people requiring rehabilitation, palliative care, cancer care, uh, and so on. Testament to to the strength and resilience of these people. Al Shifa Hospital we heard about at lunchtime. This is an ex-British Army barracks, interestingly. Uh, This is from uh, about 2012. And uh, again, there was no... uh, All the ambulances were uh, shelled here and the emergency doctors in Al Shifa Hospital had a pretty terrible time during that that, uh, conflict. They've now rebuilt, as you'd expect, and it all uh, looks rather good now. And there's a special surgery unit now, so much better now. So I mentioned uh, Hamis Alessi, who received an MSc, Master's Degree, very recently from Kellogg College. He is really pushing evidence-based medicine, and that is the degree which he she graduated in. And Anwar, who is the vice dean of the Islamic University of Gaza, and another good friend of ours with Mr. Nick Maynard, who now leads our group and was un- unfortunately couldn't be here uh, this evening. But these are three of our main players uh, and two main players on the ground in Gaza. So what about the teaching? What have we delivered? It's mainly bedside teaching. This is what is required, and it's I find it very rewarding indeed, and these, as I said before, are very bright students. Uh, Rebecca Inglis couldn't be here. She's a big player for us. She's now in Laos at the moment doing a PhD in health improvement, I think. So it's all very relevant, and she's very active with us. We teach them techniques. We teach them examination techniques, history-taking skills, uh, and so on. Uh, and as I say, I think that's, uh, that's very rewarding for us. Uh, we use various hospitals, Al Shifa Hospital, there's a couple of other hospitals that we go to as well. We have neonatologists and paediatricians who go to those hospitals. Uh, and so we spread ourselves around a little bit. What we've introduced in the last couple of years are these clinical stations, which have been very well received and we enjoy delivering them. These are just uh, four of the stations. Here's, uh, here's Nick Maynard just uh, demonstrating and teaching laparoscopic skills, so keyhole surgery skills with a fairly rudimentary box here. Um, and the students seem to like that, and they pile up polo mints and so on just to show how, how, how good they are. This is Rebecca making up a fairly disgruntled driver, giving him some burns and fractures and lacerations and so on. And we get the students to come in and to individually lead a team of their fellow students to try to resuscitate the patient and deliver treatment and uh, it's good fun I think they uh, I think they enjoy it and we enjoy it too. Uh, Professor Andrew Wilkinson, Professor of Neonatology, delivering a talk on well, neonatology and uh, there's lots of gruesome models around that um, appear from various places. Uh, you don't want to be there when the lights are out. And uh, of course Debbie we're going to hear about everyone learning lots and lots about obstetrics which we've heard is really rather important in Gaza. So Debbie joined us this time around and there was a real need, felt to be a real need for teaching in obstetrics and so she has delivered some 
great sessions. And there they all are, very, very happy. We've got, I'm not sure Adam Bailey made it. Adam's our poster boy. He's a consultant gastroenterologist surrounded by the girls, as always. And uh, we have a number of teaching assistants. I'll just mention those in a moment. Uh, Max Gibbons, professor of surgery, orthopaedic surgery, expert in uh, sarcoma surgery, ex-parachute regiment soldier, uh, sort of hanging on for dear life at the side there, and a few other individuals who played important parts. We've developed the role of a clinical teaching assistant. We felt as though there needed to be some senior junior doctor but senior student presence on the ground really just to kind of herd people into the right areas and to help us and provide a link between students and doctors so they are the top six students of their year they're particularly good and they're absolutely key for us so we teach the final years the year sixes they become interns and then after that they sign up to be clinical teaching assistants and they are absolutely indispensable for our delivery now Um, There's Adam again, of course, but just to demonstrate the public awareness campaigns the students get involved with, and we help them with that, and here just showing, trying to to teach the public about breast cancer. I mentioned the clinical improvement and clinical audit, and we take part in these various sessions with the students, and they're exceptionally well presented. Uh, Here, for example, looking at bronchial asthma, and here is Hamis and Bettina Butcher, who's an obstetrician, and uh, Tanya, who's a uh, Jordanian-born paediatrician uh, who's now working in, uh, has been working in Philadelphia. And this was a little seminar we set up at uh, Oxford and, and Gaza just to look at various audits with them. So Ian joined us, if you remember, a year or two ago in a pretty big conference on evidence-based medicine. And Hamis was running this. Ian uh, gave a presentation from a distance from the UK uh, trying to push this need for improvement and uh, acquiring data, acquiring uh, evidence and so on in order to inform practice. That was the important thing. Max, I mentioned we have a number of opportunities to interact with uh, their surgeons and uh, here is Max giving his Hunterian oration and uh, those of you who have some affiliation with the Royal College of Surgeons will realise how important John Hunter was in laying down many of our rules on surgery and anatomy and it's a great honour to be a Hunterian professor and uh, the first time that uh, a narration has been given in Gaza so that was a terrific presentation. There's lots of food involved always and here is Nick not really wishing to face much more food and Jane Crawley, I'm not sure Jane's in the audience, he was going to try and make it, about to tuck into a whole sheep with one of the clinical teaching assistants providing help as always. Thanks very much. Good evening everyone. I first of all want to thank Professor Eugene Rogan for inviting myself, Debbie and Richard to this fantastic seminar. It's quite humbling for myself to be speaking in front of such an eminent audience. I have to confess that Professor Rogan and Professor Abby Schlemer, who's in the audience, are both sort of heroes of mine from my time at medical school here when I became interested in Palestinian uh, politics and Middle Eastern politics at that time. Um, I'm hoping to share with you today a little bit about my own small amount of knowledge about the situation in Gaza, having been there and having most importantly spoken to the medical students and doctors on the ground um, who are facing the difficulties of a healthcare under siege. As Professor Regan said, I'm a paediatrician uh, in training, one of those pesky junior doctors who are striking all the time. Um, and um, I became first involved in Palestinian medical education at, in 2011. I've travelled to the West Bank in Gaza um, four times, twice to Gaza, and I'm hoping to relay just some of the information from what I've seen during my time there. Just by way of outline, to give you a taste of what's to come, I'll just briefly touch upon the current situation of the healthcare crisis ongoing in uh, Gaza at the moment. Then I'll move on briefly to the history of the healthcare system, which really sets up the uh, scenario for the current situation. Talk about the threats to health in Gaza, both direct and indirect, and I'll talk about those in more detail. And then just to finish off what is quite close to my heart as a paediatrician and advocate for children is the health effects of the siege, of the bombardment on children. So I think it's pertinent to start presentations such as this by giving this quote, which um, was made by the WHO, the World Health Organization, their Commission on Social Determinants of Health. And it says that the conditions in which people live and work can help to create or destroy their health. I think this is extremely relevant when talking about Gaza and the current situation it faces. 
So what is this current situation? I think this audience doesn't need any introduction, and I hope many of you will have come across some of this literature in the news. Unfortunately, it seems that our mainstream media has taken, turned a blind eye, really, to the situation there. This article in The New Arab mentions at the start of this year that Gazan healthcare is under imminent total collapse. The United Nations themselves launched an emergency appeal for funding because of this situation. But why is it after 12 years of a constant blockade uh, have we reached this point at this moment in time? Interestingly, Nikolai Mladenov, who's I think, a senior Bulgarian diplomat working at the UN as a special coordinator for the Middle Eastern peace process, talks about the fuel shortages that have led Gazan hospitals to reach a critical point whereby many of them are struggling to provide basic services to their population. Sadly, there have been recent hospital closures as a result of this, including Ministry of Health-run health facilities, such as the Beit Hanun Hospital, Al-Dorra Hospital, and Gaza's main mental health hospital. To make matters worse, the widely publicized recent political crisis after Donald Trump announced that the embassy would be moving to Jerusalem led to a situation where the U.S. have withdrawn funding for, effectively, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Now, that may not seem that relevant, but actually it is really highly relevant because that means $350 million worth of money that goes towards UNRWA, who are directly involved in education and healthcare within Gaza. So that's something that we will see uh, the effects of in the coming years, unfortunately. Now, I just wanted to move back in time to set the context for the current situation and talk about briefly the uh, healthcare service. So it really started off as a disjointed service from the days of Christian missionaries in the 19th century. They actually established some hospitals, some of which we've uh, been to, so still operating in East Jerusalem. And after the 1948 Nakba, or, or catastrophe, the UN General Assembly established UNRWA, which delivered food aid, education, and health services to refugees in the occupied Palestinian territories. Israel then, between 67 and 1993, really starved the services of funds and uh, created shortages of staff, hospital beds, medication and essential services. And after the Oslo Accords and the establishment of the Palestinian Authority in 1993-94, the Ministry of Health took over from the Israeli military and they really took over a neglected healthcare system infrastructure from them. The number of hospital beds within 94 to 2006 increased by 53%. But despite these apparent improvements, the current services unfortunately provide an inadequate uh, level of care for the health needs of a huge population that's ever increasing. And uh, we're still in a situation where Palestinians need referral outside at times to Israel, to Egypt, to Jordan, to the neighboring West Bank for escalation of care. I don't need to remind this audience of the timeline and political history of occupied Palestinian territories. And it goes hand in hand with the current situation and the the way the healthcare structure has moved all the way back from the times of the Balfour Declaration to the modern-day intifadas and, most recently, the blockade and siege on Gaza after the election of Hamas to power. So what are these direct and indirect threats to health for Gazans? I think the framework of human security is a useful lens through which we can consider health. And when I talk about health under the WHO, World Health Organization, definition that's physical, mental, social well-being... And the preservation of human security and safety, for obvious reasons, is a prerequisite for physical health and mental health. So when we consider the sort of social and psychological implications of insecurity which Gazans face on a daily basis, we can understand its long-term and pervasive effects on a whole population. And what are these main, what are these direct threats to health? So the obvious are Israeli Defense Force um, attacks in 2008, 2014. There's been three attacks, in fact, since 2006 blockade. And those airstrikes have left thousands of Palestinians dead and many thousands more requiring long-term care. Another direct threat to health is sewage. And really, sewage continues to pose, pose a problem for Gazans on a daily basis. We felt that when we were there, we could smell it everywhere we were traveling, unfortunately. And that's happened as a result of electricity cuts, which I'll talk, to, talk about later on resulting in really a public health catastrophe. The UN reports 50 to 60 million tonnes of sewage is dumped into the Mediterranean on a daily basis in Gaza. And then the indirect threats to health. So these are really the subtle, insidious sources of trauma to individual and collective resilience of a whole population. So repeated sonic booms as a result of Israeli aircraft, uh, military aircraft flying overhead, 
has been documented by Gazan mental health doctors to cause intense fear, anxiety, uh, bedwetting, stomach aches in children. Malnutrition is another direct effect, indirect effect of uh, socioeconomic deprivation from the blockade. And reports of patients requiring life-saving operations not being provided access are commonplace. And I'll come back to that as well as power cuts. This is a account from doctors working at Tel Shifa Hospital in 2009 after the Israeli attacks then. And I'll give you a few seconds to have a read of what is really a, quite a harrowing account of what was going on there. So power cuts. Power cuts have become a mainstay and a current problem in Gaza. And I'll explain why it has a direct relevance to health shortly. So the shutdown of the Gaza Strip's only power plants after run out of fuel last year led to Gaza's 14 hospitals, 16 health facilities, all facing imminent closure and providing essential services. And WHO really stepped in at that point to provide fuel and prevent a collapse of a total healthcare system. A generator such as this one near Al Shifa Hospital is what the hospital relies on for most of its power. And these power shortages have led to Gaza's getting, on average, four hours of electricity a day at most, if they're lucky. Power shortages have been further exasperated by electricity cuts imposed by the Palestinian Authority, that's President Abbas in the West Bank, since June 2017. So it's not really just the Israelis. This diagram just shows, from the UN, shows the current situation. So in July 2017, at the lowest point, when 79% of the electricity need in Gaza was unmet, Currently, the situation is marginally better, 71%, and they're getting four to five hours of electricity a day, if they're lucky. So what are, these, what are the effects of these power shortages on the health of actual people in Gaza? It's obvious to say that intensive care units, critical care services are directly affected. That's hundreds of patients in neonatal intensive care units and adult intensive care units who are at risk of not being able to be ventilated and hence dying if their equipment fails. And also hemodialysis patients, of which there are hundreds in Gaza. So people who are relying on hemodialysis to um, filter their uh, blood, essentially their kidneys have failed. And these equipments are extremely energy consuming. And if that fails, then again, you can imagine it leads to a risk to life. Electricity cuts also put refrigerated blood products and vaccine stocks at risk. And that's essential for life-saving surgery. That's essential for public health campaigns. And it's in some ways, a miracle that cholera hasn't broken out in Gaza as of yet, uh, whereas we've seen it in places such as Yemen since the Saudi attacks there. These are some pictures of just some of the equipment that you see in a typical intensive care unit. So that's a neonatal intensive care unit. I've worked in many in, in the UK. Um, there's a huge need for electrical equipment, so the mechanical ventilators, which provide life support for these children, the incubators themselves that keep them warm, observation, monitoring, all of these equipment require electricity in a great amount. That's a lady in Gaza having hemodialysis or hemofiltration. And again, that piece of equipment requires electricity and without it, she would die. Richard touched upon Medical Aid for Palestinians and they're really a fantastic organisation and charity that has been doing a great amount of work and has supported our work in, in Gaza teaching-wise. Fikr Shaltout, who's the uh, director of programmes in Gaza, talks about the, a long list of issues leading to the current healthcare crisis. He talks about closure of borders, delays in permits for referrals, difficulties in training medical professionals abroad and difficulties in international experts coming in, as well as outdated medical equipment. In fact, the UN states that 50% of medical equipment in Gaza is outdated and average wait is six months to be able to get spare parts. I talked about drugs and vaccines. Uh, this is one of the, this is the Gaza Central Drug Store where they keep their zero-stop drugs and their medical disposables. 30% of these are chronically unavailable, difficult to find, making treatment for many conditions, including chemotherapy, haphazard at best. And in fact, one of the uh, Palestinian Authority's ongoing political maneuvers on Hamas was to halt shipments of essential medicines as well as cutting electricity quite recently. Richard talk, touched upon this and I wanted to just briefly talk about some of these healthcare access challenges and in terms of people accessing healthcare. So in Gaza, there's really no amount of tertiary care available. In complex cases, especially in oncology patients, pediatric patients, hematology patients, often need to be referred elsewhere and outside Gaza. And that includes the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. And in order to do this, patients and their carers have to apply for permits to leave Gaza via the aerospace crossing which we saw in Richard's talk earlier. WHO has been monitoring that on a monthly basis and the numbers of permit approvals has decreased very rapidly. 
So I think in 2011, we were talking about over 90% of people being granted access, down to 77% in 2015, and all the way down to 55% in 2017. This graph demonstrates that those numbers, you can see the number of referrals of patients so in people accessing care outside Gaza has really gone down dramatically. What does that lead to? It leads to people unfortunately dying who would require healthcare outside. Uh, Matt talked about 54 Gazan patients as his estimate of dying in 2017 following denial or delayed to exit permits. That included a 54-year-old woman with breast cancer, a two-year-old child with kidney failure, amongst many others. And finally, I just wanted to briefly talk about some of the health effects on the children of Gaza and what this, all of this has meant for them. So using common sense, and you don't have to be a medic to realize this, but socioeconomic deprivation and poverty leads to poor health, and poor health leads to poverty. It's a vicious cycle. And the effects of that are really malnutrition, both in an acute setting and in a chronic setting. An NGO in uh, Gaza called Ard al-Insan, or the, the Land of Mankind, states that acute malnutrition cases with severe wasting amongst children have gone up by almost 50% over the last decade uh, in less than five-year-olds. Acute malnutrition is not the actual real problem. The real problem is chronic malnutrition. Chronic malnutrition means irreversible consequences and side effects that will affect long-term the body's physiological systems, including the immune system, people's cognitive, children's cognitive abilities, and their physical development. It's a perfect storm to create, effectively, a lost generation. You can see the rates of stunting. Diseases like rickets and stunting, which are hardly seen in the West nowadays. These are rife in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, the red is Gaza, the blue is the West Bank. These are uh, numbers are from the Lancet Health Alliance with Palestine. And it shows really the exponential rise of acute malnutrition cases in Gaza over the last 10 years compared to the West Bank. What does stunting and malnutrition look like? This is what it looks like. So this picture is taken from 2008 to 2009, just after the attacks on Gaza by the Israeli Defense Forces. And it's a child in Al Shifa hospital being treated for acute malnutrition. And what they need is urgent refeeding to save their life. Congenital defects, I'll very briefly touch upon this. We know from the Iraq war and Fallujah that the use of chemical weapons leads to increased rates of con congenital defects, some of them horrendous long-term conditions. The evidence in Gaza is not as clear. This article, which I found on PubMed, talks about birth defects increasing in parents in, in children whose parents um, had been exposed to white phosphorus attacks at the time of Operation Cast Lead. And the bombing of the family home or even getting involved in removing the rubble in itself has been shown to have an association with birth defects. So the mental trauma stress causes women to give birth to children with congenital defects. And lastly, and not least at all, is the huge burden of mental health disease which has happened as a result of this constant blockade on Gaza. So this manifests in adolescents and young adults with substance abuse, increased rates of suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder, domestic violence. In children, it's seen in a bedwetting, poor academic performance, anxiety. And the um, Gazan Community Mental Health Programme has looked at these and shown definite increases in the numbers um, of these cases. In fact, UNICEF, after the 2014 attack on Gaza, estimated that 300,000 children were in urgent need of social and psychological care. I mean, that's a huge number to deal with, and really, again, potential for a lost generation. Palestinians are known within the eastern Mediterranean countries to have the highest rates of mental, dis mental health disorders, and that's been shown in studies stu uh, published in respectable medical journals. And just to finish, I thought it would be relevant to mention this quote by Dr. Sami Oweida, who is a psychiatrist, psychiatrist working for the Gaza Community Mental Health Programme. Uh, he says that people see no reason for optimism. They are trapped in a large prison. There is no horizon, no political solution. The people anticipate a new military assault. It is always on their minds. There are constant reminders of provocation through drones, sirens, destroyed buildings. It creates high levels of anxiety in everyone. Nothing will help except ending the blockade and giving dignity back to the people. I think that nicely relates to the initial slide on uh, the WHO's comment that social determinants of health and how the situation that people live in really affects, creates, destroys their health. And I'm sorry to paint such a bleak picture, but that is the reality, and I can't really say anything hugely positive at the end of this. Except Richard obviously gave us some hope with some of the amazing work that people like this have been doing for many years. Talked about Sir Ian Chalmers and the audience founder of the Cochrane Collaboration. These are personal influences for me. Professor Colin Green, who's here as well. The late Nick Dudley, who was uh, instrumental in getting young people such as myself as medical students to go across to Gaza 
in 2011. And uh, Sir Terence English, again, who we mentioned. And Dr. Richard Horton, who is the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, which is one of the top two medical journals in the world. And he really has been hugely instrumental in pushing forward the agenda of Palestinian medical education. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. It was a recommendation from Sir Ian called Eyes in Gaza. It's written by two Norwegian doctors, Mads Gilbert and Eric Foss, who uh, went out to Gaza in 2008, 2009 at the time of the attack. And they were really the only two Western witnesses of the massacres that happened there. And it's a really harrowing account of what, what happened and what went on. That's the end of my talk. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, talk to you this evening. I feel absolutely privileged to do this. This was my very first time, actually. I went to Gaza. I've only been once, and I went last year. I hope it's the start of, of being able to go many more times. So some of this is very much a first impression. It's, you know, what, what I saw for the first time. And actually, you know, I went with... Also, I did a lot of looking at the internet before I went, and I didn't really know what to expect. And I was overwhelmed, actually, I, by, in both ways, both, you know, uh, exactly as Omar has, has said, at the, you know, inhuman conditions that these people are existing under. But also, um, actually, lots of positives. We met some amazing people. The medical students are incredibly bright. They are really able, as were many of their tutors, lecturers, um, and the enthusiasm of the, uh, the teaching assistants was overwhelming. What I did when I went home was, as you can imagine, I read everything you possibly could on women's health care in Gaza and to sort of to satisfy my curiosity about it. Um, and I'm going to share some of that with you, but also a little bit of, of, of some of the things that I learned when I was there. So I'm just going to go through a little bit of background demographics, women's health care. Obviously, they're 50% of the population. Fertility is a really big thing in Gaza. Um, So there's a lot of obstetrics. You know, so uh, for me, that was extraordinary. And I'm going to uh, sort of give some demographics about that, but also a little bit um, about the reproductive health of the population, their access to contraception, the millennium goals of the the UN and and how Palestine um, and in particular Gaza are dealing with that, the antenatal, the postpartum um, care that's been put in place, a little bit on maternal and neonatal mortality. Where does it? Where does Gaza compare to the to the UK and, and worldwide? Where does it fit in? Breastfeeding, and then things that Omar also sort of touched on about gender gender based violence and also what's being done to improve healthcare for women. The vital statistics, if you like, there is a growing population. It's growing at a rate. It has slowed down slightly, but it's growing at just over three percent a year, which is an extraordinary rate of growth. It's the sixth highest population density in the world, and the population bulge is very much in youth. So there are a huge number of children. The fertility rates, that's the sort of number of babies that uh, a woman might be expected to have during her her fertile years is incredibly high. It's 4.5. That's double that of other Arab countries and compares to uh, you know, a measly 1.8 in the UK and even less in some parts of the world. Crude birth rates, 31.6 per thousand, which is uh, astounding, um, particularly if you compare it to the UK, which is you know, by no means the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the pile at, at 12. And at any one time, I found this extraordinary, there are 45,000 women pregnant. And the youth bulge, I think, you know, particularly there's 40% of the population in Gaza is under the age of 15, compared to, it's a very much a different demographic in, in the UK, compared to 2.9% over the age of 65. So they're very much a young population. And what does that mean? Well, there are some things that really affect women's health care, and that is early marriage. So getting married before you're 18 seen about a quarter of women get married before the age of 18 and there is some evidence that after times of conflict that that may increase particularly with ongoing siege um, and the economic crisis that that actually forces families to uh, marry off their daughters earlier than perhaps they would. It's much worse if you're poor than if you're better off. Education, and one of the things that was really striking is how well educated the people of, of Gaza were. It is, it's overwhelming, actually. 70% attendance at secondary school, uh, that's completion of secondary school, so it's about 90% go into secondary school, but about 70% 
actually complete it or, or higher education. And a third of young people are enrolled in, in education. And the gender disparity favours women, so more women stay in, in education and higher education than, than men. But against that, the unemployment rates are going up. So this incredibly well-educated young population is also un- unemployed. And it's worse if you're a woman. Um, so over 60% of these very able women are unemployed. But overall, about 40% of uh, people under the age of 29 are Unemployed, which is an incredible waste of resource. Gaza has a very high adolescent uh, fertility rate, 66 per thousand, and again, that's worse if you're if you're poor. So these are women getting pregnant in their teenage years, so under the age of 18. That has um, an effect on your outlook, on your health for the rest of your life. So early childhood, um, about 25% of the sort of poorest. Uh, number will, will have their first child before the age of 18. There are a number of healthcare providers providing healthcare in, uh, in Gaza. Most of them are, are through the government, so the Ministry of Health through the Palestinian National Authority provides most of the healthcare and sets down the uh, um, sort of guidelines and protocols. There are charities through the United Nations and then non-governmental organisations. And unlike in, in, in perhaps in the West Bank, where private care, particularly in maternity, is, is a bit higher, it's perhaps more 20, 20% um, of maternity care is within the private sector. Due to the economic situation here, the private sector uh, actually is a very small part of the overall care. So I thought we'd look at the sort of things through a woman's healthcare life and the sort of big points that really, really matter. And one of those is your reproductive health is, is choice of contraception, your choice of managing your family, your size of family, delaying the fertility or just spacing out your children. There is access to contraception and nearly um, about a half of all women are using some form of contraception or have used some form of contraception. It's not open to you until you're married and probably not until you've had at least two children. So it's not there immediately. Fertility rates, though, are very much a a matter of uh, strategy for the uh, Palestinian Authority and they have been for quite some time. There is, as always, a sort of dilemma between politics, religion, social and cultural norms. Hamas politics are a little bit that it obviously it's the ruling uh, party within Gaza and its laws tend to follow Islamic law where contraception is accepted but it's to control the frequency of birth and also the, the health of the mother. But it's prohibited as a way of avoiding children. So things like permanent contraception, such as sterilisation, are, uh, are not open. Contraception use is very much promoted by uh, the various different uh, authorities. And if you are a, a refugee, which two-thirds of the population are actually considered, um, although they may have been there for many years, so it's there's citizens that sort of go back to sort of 1948 and then anyone that was displaced from other Palestinian territories is considered a a refugee or the the progeny of of refugees and very much um, contraceptive is available uh, within that healthcare setting. There's better access and it's free to the 70% of the population and there's this sort of disparity between what's a class of regional citizens and refugees where the rest of the population, the other 30%, contraception isn't so readily available, it's also not free and it's, it's certainly not the sort of quality of, of healthcare with regards to contraception is not as good. It's limited to married couples and only after they've had children and it's only in the last few years that women haven't had to prove that they are married. There are public campaigns, but as with most things, women talk to each other and that's by far the better way of getting information. And as young women particularly don't get any formal teaching on contraception as it may encourage uh, sex outside marriage, then they, that's their way really of, of finding out about what's available. It is subject to shortages. Um, one, of the, um, one of the doctors, Bettina Butcher, who I'm in contact with, has, it, it, this is one of the particular areas that she's worried about at the moment because the, the contraception is definitely one of the drugs that's being hit with the current shortages in access to, uh, to medicines. One more slightly worrying thing is that the UNFPA, who are the sole provider of contraception, uh, uh, medication in Palestine have announced that they will be cutting their funding 
and that very much is likely to affect the availability to women. Abortion care, of course, is a little bit more controversial. It's perhaps a more taboo subject, but it is very much part of women's health care. It's highly sensitive, as you can imagine, um, and that's for social and uh, cultural and, and religious reasons. But... They do happen. Data is difficult, as you can imagine, in, in these circumstances, but around about six to 7,000 um, women are having terminations each year. There is a legal framework. It is acceptable for conditions that, threat, uh, that are a threat to the mother or child's life, very much as it is in this country. However, access is difficult. They do go on, and they, may, they certainly go on if you are able to access them, either because you know a doctor or that you earn enough money that you can pay a fee so they they do happen and then going on to you know what's the sort of really large part of of what we think of as women's health care and that's for the woman during her reproductive years i think this is absolutely right giving birth should not be a matter of life and death for any woman is you shouldn't enter having a baby as the possibility of not surviving it this was on the wall of one of the hospitals i visited one of the maternity hospitals i visited in rafa and these are the lovely midwives who were on the ward. Um, and midwives have actually been very much put to the forefront in delivering health care. And as a consequence, health, health, sort of pregnancy care and antenatal care is much better. Midwives are very good at keeping normal normal. Doctors interfere and medicalise things and make it much more dangerous. So actually there's been a huge campaign since 2011 through UN and WHO to actually empower, if you like, um, midwives to take over, to assess women and make, to make low-risk midwifery and keep women safe that way. The two millennium goals that affect women's health are the fourth goal, which was re- to reduce maternal mortality by two-thirds by 2015, and to improve maternal health, particularly reduce maternal mortality by 75% between 1990 and 2015. Sadly, that's been missed, but it has gone down by about 40% overall globally and make reproductive health universally accessible to all women. The four elements, and Gaza has very much sort of taken this on board in their healthcare policies, and there are four elements to making, to making uh, pregnancy care safe. Those are access to prenatal care. All women should have at least four visits in their pregnancy by a healthcare professional um, so that, that they and the baby is monitored. They should have a skilled birth attendant. It sounds, you know, it's so basic, isn't it? Just having somebody who is skilled with some emergency backup if things start to go wrong. And then having a, access to emergency obstetric care to to address the major causes of death. And those are worldwide hemorrhage, sepsis, unsafe abortion, hypertensive disorders um, and obstructed labour. And, you know, worldwide there are a huge number of women that are dying from these very simple and mostly avoidable conditions. And then every woman should have postnatal care and access to breastfeeding. So how are Gaza doing in, in relation to the rest of the world? Well, I'm sure you're not surprised that places like Sierra Leone and, um, the Damas- and Congo have horrendous... Um, the rates are fairly much estimates and may well be largely in excess of those. But I thought it was quite interesting to look at the countries around Gaza and see how they do. So Jordan has a higher maternal uh, mortality rate than uh, Egypt does, and then Gaza is is doing better. If you look at what's happened over the years, the points at where it peaks are actually after wars. So every time there is a crisis, a military crisis, the number of maternal deaths increases. And these are not maternal deaths due to those women dying you know, in conflict. These are women dying from the normal obstetric causes because their access to health care is reduced. So it is, it, it's very interesting. 31 has gone up, and actually it's, it's a little bit lower. It's 24 for the last year. They're not doing badly, particularly if you look at you know, the US. Actually, one, the year before this, in 2014, the US is the only country in the Western world that, uh, whose rates are going up, and they were 24. They brought it down to 2015. You know, it's not all, all bad news. This is a really admirable initiative that's being done. So every death is investigated. And that's something that we've had in this country since the 1950s. There's something called the Confidential Inquiries into Maternal Death, where every single death is investigated. And if there's, it's open, it's transparent, it's confidential, and it says, what, what did substandard care contribute? 
what were the causes, how are we going to change it? And actually, some of the, those people that have been uh, influenced by many of the sort of healthcare initiatives um, my colleagues were speaking about earlier have implemented that as a, as a programme. And this report made extraordinary reading. It's absolutely comprehensive, it's transparent, it's critical. There are no, nothing is barred. But it's not critical of individuals, it's critical of the system and it's about learning and improving healthcare that way. One of the things that, that came out from this was the notes were absolutely horrendous. So getting the data was quite difficult. There were often empty pages. There were no charts. What was there was illegible. They interviewed every single family that lost a mother. An awful lot of effort was put in trying to, trying to find out the details of why each of these women died. They died from the most common causes that are seen in this country, in every country, of why women die. Pulmonary embolus, sepsis, hemorrhage. There were four cases in this year that were particularly due to the impact of war, and they were mainly to do with women not being able to get access or being sent home immediately because the maternity units were full of trauma and so women didn't get ad adequate care. A bit of toing and froing between hospitals because maternity units were closed. So war does have an impact. And then they made these very comprehensive list of things that need to be changed and they are really trying to address these and actually some of our teaching initiative is, is based on this. So the quality improvements, the audit, what's been done, put guidelines in, where's the evidence-based medicine... They're very much trying, trying to do. And some of the people that we work with, particularly Hamas and Bettina Butcher, are very instrumental because they teach the medical students who will be the obstetricians of the future um, and are trying to ingrain these qualities and values. We looked at the particular effect of the military crisis in 2014. This is a very interesting summary of some of the direct effects. 250 women were killed, 16 of those were pregnant. They were not included in the maternal deaths because they were, their deaths were due to the war, not due to the pregnancy itself. Hospitals were damaged. Patients were moved into maternity units. The operating theatres were used for trauma. So it all had an impact. It was overwhelming for the staff who were trying to deal with their own difficulties, with their own families at risk and their homes being under siege. And the hospitals itself were used as places of safety. So people were there. Shifra, one of the hospitals we worked at, had 20,000 people in the tiny garden in the front, um, which, of course, those, women, those people then needed to use uh, the facilities of the hospital just to survive and live. There were some striking things that were really obvious when you went on to a ward and you could help but notice. And one of them was crowding, you know, the, the sort of infrastructure, particularly of Shifa, which does 25,000 deliveries a year, was uh, the amount of humanity was extraordinary. And, you know, infection control at the John Radcliffe would, would have a field day, you know. Women were really pale. I kept on looking, thinking, gosh, these are. Arab women, you know, they're, they're dark-skinned, and I was, I felt, you know, on occasions darker than, than some of the women, and this was because anemia was striking, and I mean, anemia to levels of half what it should be. Anemia such that if you bleed even just a small amount in the process of childbirth, your morbidity is going to be much larger. Your likelihood of dying from a hemorrhage is going to be much greater. The average haemoglobin of women that I saw in the wards that I saw when I was teaching the students was about six or seven. That's compared to about 12 is the norm. So that's incredible. And most of that's iron deficiency. It would simply be corrected by giving a, do you know, a tablet of iron a day. 95% of women get healthcare and they're meant to get it four times, as we saw from the UN, but actually most of those visits are in the first trimester. So they may see a doctor about three times in the first 12 weeks and then nobody... Um, and there were lots of women who had maybe had several caesarean sections before who hadn't had an ultrasound even to check where the placenta was, which might be a major problem if they go on and have another caesarean section or bleed to death in the process of delivery. So sort of, you know, kind of striking things. Caesarean section rates, they're suffering from the same problem that we are and the world is, that caesarean section rates are going up and that doesn't actually save lives. There is a crucial, there's a critical limit where you should be having a caesarean section because actually it's going to save your life from obstructive labour and that's probably around about 15%. Their rate is going up and it's going up at an alarming rate, not for any good reason actually. Um, and their rate of uterine rupture was, was really quite scary. Um, it, there were many women who I saw in the ward um, who'd had a uterine rupture and, and the statistics of uterine rupture is about, is about tenfold more than you would expect to, than you would expect to see.
postnatal care, about 90% of women do get some care, mostly in the hospital and then um, after that, because most women, about 99% of them will deliver in hospital, not at home. Breastfeeding rates are enviable. Wouldn't we love those to be in the United Kingdom, where they're pitiful? Most women start breastfeeding. 41% of women start breastfeeding within the first hour after birth, and over half are still breastfeeding a year. Um, enviable rates. WHO has produced this really amazing book, which is full of really handy bedside guidelines, not sort of you know aspirational. It's do this, do this, do this, and and it's aimed at midwives. You know, getting midwives involved is is essential. It's not all about doctors. The neonatal mortality is another one of those sentinel measurements. It sort of gives an idea, a snapshot of the sort of overall healthcare. Unfortunately, uh, the neonatal mortality, unlike the sort of global overall trend which is downwards, um, Gaza for some reason uh, um, has, has increased and I think that's a direct effect of the resources. Babies, these are the things that neonates die of and there's been a significant increase between 2008 and 2015 and you saw those multiple babies in one incubator. It doesn't take much imagination to sort of see why but also the delivery care as well. And finally, gender-based violence. Unfortunately, when populations are under time of stress then gender-based violence is, is something that um, becomes more common. It is very common anyway in Gaza. The sort of statistics are appalling, but about 50% of women have been victims of domestic violence, um, but very few women ever would seek help, mainly because there isn't any help out there, or, or the stigma of what that would do to the families. UNFPA did a rapid assessment after the war and that suggested very much that there was an increase in gender-based violence and it contributes to the, you know, um, conflict contributes to the vulnerability of, of, of women and girls. Women, the things that they really complained about was that, you know, due to war and conflict and displacement that they don't, they have a lack of privacy because of that lack of privacy because of the displacement, their, their, their movement restricted um, and therefore their access to, you know, to outside is more difficult, outside the family and their feeling of sense of vulnerability is, is heightened and their frustration heightened. I asked um, my colleague Bettina, who is the, is the undergraduate lead for the Islamic University, um, what she thought was needed and these were her kind of wish list, if you like. She said she's very worried about the economic situation and the ongoing siege and the lack of drugs. She said what she saw as challenges were not that the, the workforce are, are educated or, 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 you know, in fact, they're amazing. You ask them 10 causes and they give you 20 of anything. It's just that the medical knowledge is, ex is extremely good. But it's sort of rather booklet and, and less good at the sort of applied. She feel that the sort of the real nubs of where it would make a difference to outcomes for women would be communication skills. There was a there's a there's a great when things go wrong, doctors get out of the way. They often won't even tell patients when they you know really bad outcomes happen or a woman has died. Um, and they leave it to somebody else to, to break that news. They're very frightened that the patient's families can be quite aggressive, there's even violence. But that communication of involving patients and patients' families, you know, it's a joint healthcare needs to, needs to be sort of brought in a bit more in, in, in Gaza. <coughs> Including patients in decision-making. There's, there's lots of those deaths. There is, everything was absolutely fine, and then the woman suddenly died. And that's what the family perceived, because... That, that was what the communication was. Evidence-based practice um, and quality improvements, and we heard about our colleagues who are doing a huge amount of work um, on that. The lack of that, the lack of evidence-based practice, leads to bad things happening, particularly by doctors who really over-medicalise. Um, they love episiotomies, so every woman seems to have an episiotomy. Poor recognition of third-degree tears, so you know things that might affect a woman's continence, you know, really major things. You don't recognise them if you don't repair them properly. The high mortality rate, especially after the war. The work, therefore, needs to be done providing more training in, in those skills, using simulation training, using the bedside training. I was amazed, actually, one of the things when, with the medical students was they do lots and lots of lectures, they're brilliant at knowing stuff, and they all get one hour on the ward together. So there will be, one of the hospitals I went to, there were 30 male students on one ward all trying to see a patient in an hour. And the women just went, no, thank you, when a doctor's kind of, junior doctor's kind of, you know, circled around their bed. And actually what needs to happen is a bit more integrated learning, you know, at the bedside. Actually, 
junior doctors need to have a you know need to have a timetable so that only one of them is on the ward at a time and then they can see all the patients and then present them and you know and they'll learn that way lots of evidence-based practice and and just building capacity so here we are doing a bit of simulation training this is his Maybe you bore, I can't remember what her name was, but um, she had a postpartum hemorrhage, she had an inverted uterus, she had a uterus that was uh, a ruptured, uh, she had a retained placenta, so we did all sorts of things. This are my Oxford students. There is no difference. We're doing exactly the same things. So these are the junior, very junior doctors uh, learning on the simulation, and we did exactly the same. These are the two maternity hospitals I visited, one, as I said, in Rafa. Uh, another at Shifa. And then just some of the things. This struck me when I was thinking about communication between women. Women women tell other women, you know, what's available contraceptively, you know, who's what they've had. You know, women compare things. We're very good at that. And this really, I thought, was very sad that the first women's channel was blocked before it even started. Particularly want to thank Nick Maynard who gave me the opportunity to go to uh, Gaza last year. I hope he'll invite me again. And to our hosts who were unbelievably hospitable and helpful and nothing could be uh, too much trouble for them. And Bettina Botcher who actually I found absolutely inspiring. She really is making a difference to the future obstetricians. Thank you.